0: don't change our behaviour. By the year 2050, there's going to be more plastic in the
1: ocean than fish. So do we want a system of anarchy? And that's what we probably have at the moment.
0: And they estimate that there's about 40.3
1: million people in some form of
2: modern slavery.
0: There is no single industry not touched by this
1: issue.
2: Definitely racists have been very good at using the internet. There's been a shift in thinking about who counts as a terrorist and there are currently terrorist laws being used against white nationalists. Where people's lives
1: are being destroyed, that to me is enough to say something needs to be done here.
0: Hello, I'm Susan Carland and welcome to What Happens Next, where we take a closer look at some of the more confounding issues facing the world. Experts already fear the growing threat of violence posed by far-right radicals in Australia and the online sites they use to organise and recruit. Australia's intelligence agencies are warning that right-wing terrorism will remain an enduring threat, and groups are growing more organised and cohesive. In March last year, the Christchurch massacre shook New Zealand and the world, while the Australian federal election had far-right groups presenting themselves as legitimate entities with the aim of entering our political system. In this three-part series, we explore the impact and influence right-wing extremism could have on our world if left unchecked. Who is taking action to address it and what impact that's having? And finally, the steps individuals like you and me can take when confronted with extremist language and action in our own lives. Today, we're joined by historian and social researcher Andrew Marcus. Professor Marcus warns that the capacity for these groups to destroy lives is growing and will continue to do so if it's left unchecked. Is it actually getting worse or do we just think it is? So you would say it quantifiably extremism or hate speech is on the increase?
1: It's the capacity for these people to do great harm, to destroy lives. So that's what we're doing. It's not something that we can quantify. It's not like we've got 100, whereas previously we had five. If we have five where people's lives are being destroyed, that to me is enough to say something needs to be done here.
0: When you say lives destroyed, do you mean physically as in this could result in death or as in the psychological impact of, of hate speech on people is, is incredibly destructive.
1: Both. Increasingly, we have incidents of mass shootings. It's not like it's thousands of people at any particular time. But there's these are like defining incidents. Uh, what happened in New Zealand, in Christchurch, that is a defining incident which will come to characterise the impact that these groups have. And it's not going to go away. Like people will remember that for the course of their lives. And I'm not just talking obviously about the people who are directly impacted, yeah, yeah. who lost their relatives, who, who lost their lives. But I'm saying New Zealand society had mm. a major impact. Mm. Um,
0: and Australia, the ripples seem to even come, all of Australia seemed yeah. quite devastated.
1: Yes, because the, the issue is that this could happen tomorrow. This could happen to you. This could happen to your family. But at, at another level, it, it's the... As you said, the psychological impact on individuals—you know, people who don't have anything better to do—they troll um, their political opponents as they see them, and and it's a sort of a daily, ongoing vilification. And and these people engage in this activity, think that they're doing something fine and noble. Mm. So if someone has to actually stand up and say, well, wait a minute, Mm. there has to be some limits, and we're imposing limits.
0: Online platforms and social media have delivered unprecedented access to information and made it much easier to be exposed to extremist ideology. This has increased the ability of these groups to recruit new members and to organise.
1: You know, if we go back to, say, the 1960s and we look at some of these extremist groups, they were struggling for airtime. They were struggling to get their messages across. Like I remember, like at university teaching... Um, extremist ideologies mm. uh, to students, and we might want to get an example of an extremist ideology, like for example Mein Kampf yeah. or, or other works. Yeah, um, and it might actually be quite hard to actually locate these. Mm. Now look at the situation today. Right, and you can go to a hundred sites and find all of these extremist works. That's a fundamental change in society. We actually have to recognise it and we have to understand that what's happened has been an unregulated development of something which causes great social harm.
0: Professor Marcus says Australians' strong belief in protecting free speech has contributed to an unwillingness to perceive hate speech online as a clear cause of social harm in the way that we would see maybe issues of worker exploitation, for example. He says we need to see a shift in society's perception of these issues to mobilise the community and demand better protection against hate speech and extremism. Why do you think we've been so reluctant to have some sort of formal regulation on or in the internet? when we have it in all other aspects of our lives and we generally see the the social value of that.
1: At one level, it's developed in a sort of organic way so that people haven't really taken full cognizance of it. They do now. Mm. But it probably took a while for people to understand just as the people who use the internet to vilify and to attack and to mobilise for various causes, it took them a while to understand the, the potential of what they were doing. There's also the aspect of of free speech, um, that people greatly prize free speech. And it has possibly made some of the people who would have been up in arms and saying, we've got to do something about that, it made them a bit reticent to do anything because they felt, wait a minute, if we rein in that group's freedom of speech, we're also denying our own freedom of speech. So it's obviously a very complex matter. But the complexity of it shouldn't prevent us from having like a, a more serious and fundamental debate about that issue and to get away from this notion that somehow it's really up to uh, the service provider mm. to rein that in. It, it, it should be the role of regulatory authorities to pose limits.
2: I'm Patrick Emerton, I'm an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at Monash University and an Associate of the Castle Centre for Human Rights Law. I research in political theory and constitutional theory and also in national security law.
0: Our next guest, Professor Patrick Emerton, isn't convinced that we actually need more freedom of speech in Australia. The controversial Section 18C offers important protections for Australians and it should remain, he says, but... Legislation that would impact people's ability to connect and get involved is concerning, no matter what their political perspective.
2: in Australia at the moment has a lot of, a lot of regulation of what people can say and do. I mean, obviously, Australia is nothing like Soviet Russia.
0: Do you think we're overregulated when it comes to
2: free speech? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily want to go that way. That way of talking. Me- It very quickly buys into a certain narrative that I would associate in the Australian context with the Institute of Public Affairs. And then you get into, we should repeal 18C. I've got no objection to 18C. That's not what's sort of burdening people. It's more um, attempts to shut down political or collective action, people getting involved collectively trying to say and communicate things together, whether that be... Reclaim Australia. Who are there? I mean, when they're having a rally, they're not out uh, attacking, like, then violently attacking mm. people or uh, threatening property. They're they're kind of in the public square, sort of doing their thing, and we don't have to admire them for it. Mm. Um, I mean, we can revile them. But when dirty Arabs come to this country and say. Our Islamic school is more important than special needs school? I say bloody no! But it has only been relatively
0: recently that law enforcement agencies have been viewing right-wing extremism as the same type of threat as, say, Islamist extremism. Suddenly, these groups are finding themselves captured by laws they'd previously
2: applauded. So for a long time, ASIO and its annual reports used to have two headings. They had a heading called terrorism. And under that, you had al-Qaeda, Islam, Salafists... Jamaris Lamia, blah blah blah, and then they had a different heading: nationalists or um, nativists, and under that you had claim Australia types, and as far as I know, I was the first academic voice in Australia to ask the question: like why? As, in, as, why as a lawyer, as in why? Categories? Yeah, why? Given that when you looked at the the construction, so the interpretation, and a potential application of Australian counterterrorism law there were clear instances of white Australian viol- white supremacist violence that would count. I'm thinking particularly of the fire bombings of restaurants, I think especially Chinese restaurants in Perth in, I want to say, the early 1990s. Now, there's been a shift in thinking about who counts as a terrorist, and there are currently terrorist laws being used against white nationalists. Now, put ourselves in the shoes of the white nationalists. When the terrorism laws were introduced, and they were all about getting the Al-Qaeda's, I'm going to guess at least some of those white nationalists thought that was a good thing. Mm. But now they turn around and see, oops, right, we're caught under that. But to write a law and sort of have it be a credible thing to be enacted, there are kind of certain like formal standards of adequacy that it has to meet. It's nearly always going to have elements of generality. So so the law won't say it's a criminal offence to utter white supremacist speech. It'll define the speech in some more neutral way. So speech generating certain fears of attack or speech creating a certain sense of ostracism or of social dis- whatever it might be. And then, right, well, there are people who feel that when the Antifa mm. say things, right, just as, right, it turns out that the same abstract formal categories that capture the al so for them in terrorism law, it's... um. Uh, threats of violence against people or property that have a political motivation and an intimidatory intent. Um, Well, it turns out some of the white nationalists do that too.
0: Patrick also agrees with Professor Marcus about the importance of effective opposing voices when it comes to extremist views.
2: Quite a few years ago now, I'm picking my daughter up from her ballet class and between picking her up and having to get her to a birthday party, I knew there was an anti-Reclaim Australia rally happening Parliament House, and thought she's old enough to come down, so took her down. And how old was she? Seven, maybe. <laughs> so um, seven daughters eight. first, so, right wing extremist rally observation. So take take her down, and um and she says, "It's like who are the different people?" And it's like, well, those ones in hoods are probably our scary friends, mm-hmm. and those ones there with the signs, they're not our friends. And what not our friends? Or they think that sort of. We've got family members who are people of colour. They shouldn't be here in Australia. Um, and that's why we're here, to protest against them. Um, so now that's that speech, and it's by the Reclaim Australia people and their sort of hangers-on and so on. And that has, in a sense, implications sort of for me and my family. Um, I don't think it's criminal. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not sort of – I don't think it's got quite the – interpersonal aspect perhaps that's going to trigger 18c i think that's like kind of piss off type posters mm. um, so it's not stuff that i like and so sort of they part of a counter-protest but i mean i don't think that's criminal and I'm, I'm not myself sure that it needs to be i mean i think i'd rather go there with my slightly scary friends in black hoods and and make a different public Mm -hmm. statement.
0: Let's hear from Andrew Marcus.
1: But if you want to be effective, yeah, and you want to actually have the voices to counter these right-wing extremists and the claims that they're making, if people can see tangible demonstration of articulate spokespersons for these communities, I think that that can actually make a significant difference.
0: Right. So you you think that those sort of articulate spokespeople could be one of the best weapons against extremism?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. Because, again, if you, how does the media work? The media works with personalities. See, the media doesn't work with masses. Yeah? So you, you have to have people who are going to develop that profile and become the go-to mm. men and women for the media to go to to get responses. But it's very difficult because um, how can one person – Supposed to speak, say, for the African community. Right. When the African community is diverse. Right. But the, I mean, it's a continent. <laughs> it's a continent. But it, people don't understand that. No, that's right. They think Africa.
0: Right. Kenyan, Somalis. They all think the same thing. Is is the the mentality?
1: And if we what we want to make a difference is within that sort of mainstream segment of the population that can go this way or that way, we want to influence them. We have to do it in a way that they can understand. And it can't be overly complex. It mm. has to be about like star ratings and it has to be about uh, people who have, can cut through, people who can get up and with some of these right-wing commentators who I want to digni- dignify with a name, who are all over our media, print and electronic, mm. who can actually go pound for pound with these people. Mm. Very, very difficult to find people like that. Uh, and, and in a way... If communities want to make a difference, and I think we all do want to make a difference, that I think has to be seriously considered. But I recognise how difficult that is because to have one person as spokesperson, it's like the Australian community taking one person who's going to be spokesperson for the Australian community. So, okay,
0: well, let me ask you one last question then on on dealing with right-wing extremism. What about just not giving them oxygen? I think about the, you know, the right wing commentators that you speak about who Mm -hmm. churn out many opinion pieces and do these people just need to be starved of oxygen? By engaging with them, we are actually giving them the oxygen they need to keep flaming. And maybe the best thing to do is just keep doing our work and they'll eventually become irrelevant. What do you think about that?
1: I'm not sure about starving them. Is the correct sort of way to think about it? It's effectively rebutting them. Mm. You know, I recently, just a week ago, I saw a a documentary that dealt with McCarthy, Senator McCarthy, the period of McCarthyism, the attacks that were made on people who, at one point in their lives, might have been members of the Communist Party, whether they Mm. were public servants, diplomats, whether they, whatever. What what brought that to an end? And what that brought that to an end. Was there was a televised hearing when he started attacking the US Army. And one of the leaders of the army got up and he effectively rebutted him. Mm. You know, He challenged him, he said, do you realize that you're harm that you're doing? Um, and in that sort of context, when there was an effective spokesperson, that made a tremendous difference and basically discredited McCarthy thereafter. In a way, that's what we have in America today. Mm. American society is so divided. The Democratic Party, as we speak, they don't seem to be able to come up with an effective candidate. We've seen in a number of countries there have been elections and they actually haven't come up with majorities. So this is the problem, the problem of leadership, the problem of having confidence in in a person um, to articulate a viewpoint. It may not be totally your viewpoint, but if it's powerfully articulated and targeted then there's the potential to make a difference.
0: Do we still live in a society in which that can actually be achieved? I think of the way the media works now and you could have a person stand up and give a very compelling rebuttal to whoever in in Australia. Um, By the time they're finished, you know there's been 58 think pieces written in response to them. A million tweets have been written about it. This is fake news. There's Facebook groups popping up about this and that. It seems like because of the way the media works—a twenty-four-hour and online news cycle works—you cannot just have a single rebuttal anymore. It's we. It's everything's fragmented. You know, you just look at the way people respond to Q and A now. It's no longer a debate. It's just an argument. Um, and so I wonder how effective it is is that model in 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 today's society.
1: That's a very sort of pessimistic viewpoint. Yes. Because. <laughs> Like if if we adopt that viewpoint, we can say well, nothing will change. We're we're sort of up the river, yeah, and there's no way that we're actually going to get back into the mainstream. All right, tell,
0: please main, get us in the
1: boat, yeah,
0: <laughs> Andrew. Tell us how to get back there.
1: So if if you would accept that view, that basically the game has changed. Yeah, the media has changed, people's capacity to to be heard mm. and to be listened to has fundamentally changed. If that has happened. Uh, we're in a pretty dire strait. Um, Aren't we? <laughs> like, <laughs> like those of us with children or grandchildren, we have to be worried. Yeah. Uh, because it's not necessarily going to be impacting on me. Right. Um, given my age so much, as with the younger generations, And it's a very powerful argument to say that, in fact, the, the game has changed and what you, mm. you're talking about is no longer going to work. And then I say, well, if that's the case, you've got t- two options. Give up, go home, yeah. enjoy yourself, make the most. <laughs> Watch everything burn. Make the most of while Australia burns, mm. yes, and the rest of the world mm. and climate change destroys our planet. Or you can say, well, I, I don't want to accept that. Yeah. And it may well be that I actually have to rethink some of these issues. I might have to actually give up some of my freedoms. Mm. I may have to actually abandon this notion that everybody has got the right to say whatever they want on the internet Um, because we can see where that's taking us and it's a place where we don't want to be. So that people who are activists across the spectrum, may have to rethink that issue and say, really ask themselves, in this changing environment, how can we actually be effective? Mm. Because... I think that what is effective speaking for the mainstream is someone with capacity to articulate viewpoints and then people accepting that. I don't 100% agree with that, but it's better to accept that and to have powerful spokespersons Mm. than to knock everyone off at the knees. Mm.
0: Well, on that cheerful note, I am going to choose your happier of the two options. Yeah. Thank you very much, Professor Andrew Mankus. Thanks very much. From that discussion, it seems like being quiet Australians won't deliver the change we need. On the next episode, we'll discover more about what drives extremism and what else can be done to change it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on the next episode of What Happens Next.